So I, fi I finally discovered one of the downsides of living in Sierra Vista, and it's your pollen count. Right. <laughs> so um, I've had a rough time this week. I'm going to have to be taking some slugs of water periodically and maybe pop in, pop in a cough drop, so please bear with me. That's probably the only downside though, right? Well, last month I had the pleasure of spending the day with Imam Jamal Rahman. He was a workshop leader for the Tachiria School of Spiritual Direction, where I am a student. Jamal spoke on the spiritual gems of Islam, which is a title of one of his books. And this is uh, the only book of his I found in the Sierra Vista Library, but he has several um, on Amazon, and he is a good writer and good storyteller. The day I spent in Jamal's presence and with his teachings was well worth more than all of my tuition for that uh, program at the Tachiria School, and I was really moved by the beauty and the humor that we so rarely associate with Islam. Before I share some of those teachings, I want to quickly review the five pillars of Islam for those of you who may be unfamiliar with them or may simply have forgotten them. Islam is a monotheistic religion, and its first pillar is a profession of faith. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Surprisingly, Islam embraces both genders, or I should really say all genders, in its understanding of God, and it recognizes the prophets of Jewish and Christian scriptures. So I invite you to open your minds to the possibility of meaningful wisdom from this tradition, even if you are not a theist. The second pillar of Islam is prayer. As I told the children, devout Muslims pray five times a day in order to deepen their intimacy with Allah. The third pillar is charity, giving freely to help the marginalized, the needy. The fourth pillar is Ramadan, the fast that we talked about. It's a time for gratitude. It's a time for self-purification. The fifth pillar of Islam is Hajj, and that's the pilgrimage to Mecca that any Muslim who is able-bodied and has the financial means to do tries to make at least once in their lifetime. Because when they join with the thousands of other Muslims in the rituals that they do there, it reminds them of the sacredness of belonging to this community of faith. The spiritual discipline created by these five practices provides a way for people to deepen their faith, deepen their inner wisdom and inner peace, and deepen their connection with the holy. Unitarian Universalists are often criticized because many of us don't develop spiritual practices which nourish us. We go off exploring lots of different paths, but it can be more like dabbling or, or plowing shallow roots without really planting seeds that can take root and grow. So one of the beautiful things about Islam for those who practice it faithfully is that it does provide a path for an ever deepening understanding of self, of purpose, of one's relationship to God and to others and to the earth. I think that we understand that all 
brands of religions have their own kind of fundamentalism. A fundamentalism that refuses to recognize the metaphorical nature of its prophets, sayings, and teaching stories. A fundamentalism that prescribes a literal interpretation of time and culture-bound rules that no longer fit with modern understandings of science and human behavior. A fundamentalism that denies the reasoning ability and inherent goodness of the common person. A fundamentalism that places power in the hands of a few, sometimes those few with less than perfect understanding of the heart of the religion and less than perfect motives. So it is with much of what we hear about Islam in the news these days. The Islam of ISIL and other militant groups is a per perversion of the love that is at the heart of Islam. Similarly, many of us see far-right Christian views as entirely contrary to, to the teachings of Jesus, the core, the heart of Christianity. People refer in horror to the Quran's outdated compendium of rules and regulations from 7th century Arabia, just as we reject many of the same kinds of regulations in some of the books of the Old Testament. Yet we often fail to explore the timeless spiritual guidance also available in the Quran and in the Bible. Imam Jamal puts it this way. If we believe that every single verse of the Quran is divine and timeless, then any interpretation of the difficult verses must emanate from our higher self and not from our shadow side. Spiritual teachers say that interpretation of any scriptural verse depends on the consciousness and intention of the purpose, of the, of the person. So when you're Trying to interpret a verse, it depends on your consciousness, on your intention. And Jamal goes on to say, as Rumi reminds us, a bee and a wasp may drink from the same flower, but one produces nectar and the other a sting. We must choose the nectar. This morning I hope to give you a taste of that nectar, a, a glimpse into the spirituality of Islam. I will share some of the meditations and stories that Jamal shared with Tacharya students. Much of them you'll find in the book I showed you. I am not an expert on Islam, but Jamal graciously gave me permission to draw freely from his teaching and writing, and I am both honored and humbled to do so. So Jamal is the imam of a large congregation in Seattle, and as a progressive Muslim, he draws from many sources. <coughs> many of his teachings are informed by Sufism, the mystical arm of Islam. So when asked, what is a Sufi, Jamal explains that Sufis are Muslims who emphasize essence over form and substance over appearance in their spiritual practices. So in a way, he is a lot like us you use because he does draw wisdom from a lot of different sources. And this is what he says. If the institution of religion can be compared to a cup and the water in it is a spiritual message, Sufis lament that we spend too much time 
polishing the outside of the cup and neglect to drink the water. Sufis do subscribe to outer rituals, but are mostly eager to do the inner work. Much of the spirituality of Islam then is found in the Sufi tradition. And Jamal is especially fond of Sufi poets and their ideas about how to cultivate awareness, intentionality, and compassion for oneself and for others. So we began our meditation this morning with some of these goals in mind. And I will return to these goals and topics now. One very important practice in many religions, including Islam, is called by various names. Mindfulness, cultivating awareness, being in the present moment. One of our greatest challenges is to live in the present moment. The great sages teach us that divine or higher qualities can flow into us only in the present moment. But the problem is our, our thoughts tend to flit back and forth between past and future. And it's very difficult for them to stay in the present moment. And this drains us of our vitality. But being in the present doesn't mean we should never think about the past or the future. In fact, we need to learn from the past and we need to make plans for the future. And that's fine as long as we think about the past and the future with intention and with balance. So we should all give ourselves permission when we find ourselves in our heads too much thinking in the past or too much in the future to, to do that with a little time limit. Okay, I find I'm worrying about this. That would be in the future. So I'm going to do that for another five minutes, and then I'll move on to something else. So true healing really comes from trying to live in the present and not being stuck in the past or worrying about the future. When you can experience acceptance and gratitude in the present moment, that has a very deep impact on all of us and to those we come in contact with during our days. The Quran says, by the essence of time, verily, all humankind is in deep loss, except those who believe in the oneness of Allah and perform good works and remind each other of the truth. And the essence of time, according to spiritual teachers of all traditions, is the present moment. There is a story about a Buddhist monk who was suffering a toothache, which of course was very painful. He walked around saying to himself, oh, if only this toothache would go away, I would be so happy. And whenever he met a fellow monk, he would say, do you have a toothache? And the person would say, no. And then he would say, why aren't you happy? You're having a non-toothache moment. <laughs> We take so much for granted, and we don't appreciate the value of something until it is lost. We have a lot of non-toothache moments. So this story calls us, reminds us to be grateful at every moment and mindful. The prophet Muhammad said, know thyself, and you shall know thy sustainer. Now, Jamal is sharing a little story from the Hindu tradition about two birds on the branch of a tree. This is a, a metaphor for witnessing yourself, witnessing oneself, observing the ego, ego qualities and the higher qualities in our actions, our words, our speech, our feelings throughout the day. 
So imagine there are two birds sitting on the branch of a tree. One bird is pecking at the fruit, tasting it, whether it's bitter or sweet. And this bird represents a part of ourselves that is experiencing life. So that little bird is pecking at the fruit and experiencing life. The other bird sits nearby and is simply observing the first bird with calmness and compassion. It doesn't pass judgment. It doesn't analyze. It doesn't condemn. It just simply watches the first bird pecking at the fruit. So there is a part of ourselves that can be trained to observe and shine the light of awareness on ourselves as we go about our daily lives. Using this metaphor, we can learn to shine the light of compassionate awareness on ourselves, which automatically has the effect of increasing our, what he calls divine, or we might call higher qualities, helping us to, to um, get to that point of being the person that we want to be. And when we notice ourselves observing ourselves and we're able to make an adjustment if we feel we want to do that, then we should express gratitude for this gift of awareness when it comes. There are many ways to get to know oneself. One of the things that Jamal suggested was carry around a little notebook with you and as you're going through the day, you might jot down I was really proud of the way I was kind to that cashier, or, gee, I was really rude to that other driver, whatever it might be. And at the end of your day, you can kind of look that over and, and um, note things in your gratitude journal, things that you might learn or things for which you're grateful, where you feel you have grown. So. Gratitude journal is not an Islamic thing, but it is a kind of practice that people can do to create that greater self-awareness. An important task is understanding and transforming the ego. So our job is not to satisfy the desires of the ego, but to transform the ego. And there are a lot of teaching stories to help us on our way. These stories are often conveyed by the Mullah Nasruddin a mythical 13th century figure known by many names in many different cultures. Um, as I uh, read some of these stories, it reminds me, oh, and I'm going to forget the name, the trickster in a lot of the um, Native American um, stories. The coyote, yes. Well, the mullah's role is to convey essential spiritual truths through humorous teaching stories, which have many levels of meaning. So the, the mullah is a village idiot and a wise sage rolled into one. He doesn't really aspire to be a teacher, so he's the greatest teacher of all. He doesn't have any need for approval, so he's loved by all. And he's constantly involved in expressing personal foibles. So he invites us to laugh at his eccentricities and mistakes. And as a result, hopefully we learn to laugh at our own. So the ego has an exaggerated opinion of itself. And the following Mullah story illustrates this truth. One moonlit night during Ramadan, the Mullah on one of his walks peered into a well 
and was horrified to find that the moon had fallen into the bottom of the well. Eager to be of service to the world, he rushed home to get some rope. And after tying a hook on one end, he flung the rope into the well. Purina, sister moon, the mullah encouraged, help is at hand. The hook got hold of something, so he pulled and pulled with all his might. And when the hook loosened, he fell back and lo and behold, there was the moon. <laughs> restored to its proper domain. He was elated and he said, thank God I came along. Imagine the consequences if I did not happen to pass by this particular well. And I wonder how often are we aware of our own eccentricities, our own ego, our own pride. We have to shine some light of awareness on them in order to transform them. We all have excuses for not doing that inner work. And our excuses are very creative. We get stuck in certain patterns of behavior. You may have heard this story about the mullah and the cheese sandwich, but that illustrates how we can get stuck. So every day at lunchtime, the mullah opens his brown bag, discovers yet another cheese sandwich. And he complains that he is getting sick and tired of these lousy cheese sandwiches. Finally, his coworkers, who are very tired of hearing about this, say, why don't you persuade your wife to pack a different kind of sandwich? But I'm not married, says the mullah. <laughs> well, then who makes your lunch every day? I do, he said. <laughs> so how does that story apply to my life, to your life, to all of our lives? Oops. <laughs> We have to examine our patterns, our excuses, all the ways in which we're stuck. And we have to examine those with compassion for ourselves. The task is to witness ourselves, explore, and shine the light of compassion and awareness on our own behavior. Compassion towards oneself is what the imam said is probably the most helpful quality in our journey called life. Because when we can reconcile ourselves, be compassionate about ourselves, then we can more freely reach out to others. In the Tao Te Ching, we find the verse, compassionate towards yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world. In the wisdom traditions, compassion is compared to the element of water. There's nothing so soft and yielding as water, yet for overcoming the hardest obstacles, there's nothing so powerful as water. Another verse from the Tao Te Ching. So the person who is gentle, merciful, and compassionate possesses authentic power and strength. The Prophet Muhammad was once asked, what is the secret of life? Be compassionate toward yourself and be compassionate toward others. Sound familiar? That's in a lot of world traditions. So it must be important, right? 
Developing compassion for oneself is a lifelong process. If we can truly master this art and practice it, everything else follows, giving us equilibrium, contentment, and balance. And true compassion is not only authentic strength, it's also life bestowing. In several verses, the Quran explains metaphorically that the earth was parched, but when the waters of compassion graced the land, the earth became clothed in green. So the person who is compassionate is not only strong, but is also life-giving and life-affirming. So how do we practice compassion with ourselves? One of the simplest and most important practices that can be used throughout the day is also Jamal's favorite. I've been trying to remember to practice this more lately. And it's simply this, during the day, Touch your heart and silently or, or aloud express your gratitude for something simple right then that's in your life or that's happening at that moment. You can express that gratitude to the mystery, to God, to other people that you've encountered during your day. You can express that gratitude to yourself. You can express that gratitude to natural phenomena, to the universe any number of people, events, things in your life. So I'm just going to give us 30 seconds to practice that. <coughs> Ask you to put your hand over your heart and just express gratitude to or for something important to you. Another spiritual practice is known as sacred naming. We talk to ourselves all the time. If you tune in, you'll hear that chatterbox up there. It's going almost all the time. And a lot of it is negative. And it's important to become aware of this internal conversation. And when the conversation becomes self-critical or negative, then you can do a spiritual intervention. And I'm going to teach it to you because Jamal taught it to me. So it helps you make a practice of relating to yourself with affection and compassion. So think of a term of endearment that you like. You can go back to any time in your life, including the recent past, when you remember being called or named by another per person with sweetness, with positive intent, with affirmation. Might be the name that a grandparent called you. A might be the name a sweetheart called you. Might be a nickname or a pet name that you have for yourself. It might be something like Brother David or Sister Edna, Sweetheart, Dearest, Beloved. So take a moment and choose a name for yourself. And if you can remember that precious moment of sacred naming when you were called by that name. And just close your eyes a minute and repeat that name silently to yourself in a very tender tone. And anytime you hear yourself speaking negatively to yourself or criticizing yourself, you can use this sacred 
name. And it will change the course of your inner dialogue. And gradually that inner dialogue will, will soften and shift. And this can become a lifelong practice that will help you invoke mercy and gentleness for yourself. I'd like to end with these words from Jamal Rahman. In this world, no matter what plans we make or things we acquire, the thief will come from the unguarded side. Be occupied then with your inner life. It is a gift of real and lasting value. <laughs>